It's week 49 of 2017, and people are still getting hacked. But that's not the only news we have this week. We have announcements from Apple as well as AWS, and that's all coming up on the IT Pro TV podcast starting right now. Hello and welcome to the IT Pro TV podcast. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Don Pizzette. Don, how you doing? Doing swell. Ready to tackle another group of news articles in our Week in Review. Yeah, and it is apparently week 49 here in 2017. We are almost to a close, just building up to that big week 52 show that uh, <laughs> everyone has been waiting for. But uh, week 49, a lot going on. We've got some updates actually on uh, the articles we covered in week 48 as well. So let's just go ahead and jump right to it. So, Don, the first thing we have here is uh, you and I were talking before the show about how PayPal is kind of that uh, that company you, you put on a pedestal of there's been no breaches and you've got all this uh, personally identifiable information, but also all of our money, uh, which is pretty important. But they kind of roundabout had a breach. So can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, so there was a, a big breaking article this week uh, featured on most websites. If you if you have been under a rock, you might not have seen it. Uh, but there was a, PayPal had a breach, right? 1.6 million customers' data is leaked. Now, when I saw it, I was really surprised because in the past, I've said exactly what you said, Peter. I've said, man, PayPal, they, they've been around a long time, right? I don't remember when they actually started, but I used PayPal in the... Early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, they were around, you know, at the beginning and the height of eBay, so that's kind yeah. of really what helped. And and I remember you got the, the free five bucks when you signed up. That was the big thing, so you'd get other people to sign up. But, yeah, they've been around definitely since the, the early 2000s, yeah, I'd I, say. I definitely used them in 2001, so it's got to be before that. So, you know, at least 16 years. And in all that time, here they are, in a completely Internet-facing uh, company, they get your account information, and not just like you know your own account, but your bank account. If you do wire transfers from your bank into PayPal or PayPal to your bank, I mean, this is is like the most sensitive of data for most people. And if any company is going to get breached, these are the guys where it would be the worst because people would have access to your your real dollars, right? Um, but it hasn't happened in all this time. PayPal has been apparently either one amazingly lucky or two amazingly diligent at securing the network and securing that data and not having a breach. So when I first saw this headline, PayPal has a breach, that was a big deal. I was like, man, wait a minute, that, that, that's huge. If a company like PayPal that obviously is, is doing their, their work, if they can't protect their network, the rest of us are just screwed. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I started reading on it. And um, the first kind of indicator that something was off with the headline was that it was 1.6 million accounts breached or, or compromised, right? Uh, and that there was personally identifiable information that was leaked out. And, uh, and it turns out when you start peeling away the, the layers of this story and you get right down to it, PayPal itself wasn't actually breached. That they had acquired a company called TIO Networks. And if you haven't heard of them, don't feel bad, right? I hadn't heard of them either. Uh, apparently, if you're Canadian, though, you should be really familiar with them because in Canada, TIO Networks ran a, a series of kiosks that were found all over the place for doing utilities payments. So if you wanted to pay your electric bill, you could go to this kiosk and you could pay it. So they, they accept money. PayPal accepts money. It makes sense that, that would be an acquisition they would target. So PayPal acquired them. And in the meantime, it turns out that TIO had had a breach. So the reason it was only 1.6 million is because that's how many people were using TIO Networks to make their utilities payments. PayPal, I, I pulled up a, a November report from them. Uh, PayPal actually has 218 million active uh, users. They probably have more that aren't active. So that's a huge amount of people's data to protect. In this scenario, PayPal had acquired them and hadn't incorporated them into their systems yet. And, you know, there was a breach. The breach may have occurred even prior to the acquisition. We don't, we don't know that, or at least I don't know that. Um, so the key thing here is that in the media, it sounds better to say PayPal had a breach than it does to say that TIO Networks. Now, PayPal has actually taken a few different actions, which I thought were pretty interesting. Because, you know, normally what does a company do when they have a breach like this? They, they shut down operations temporarily. They sort things out. They contact the, the, the victims. They give them credit monitoring, right? And, and most of that stuff's happened. But... PayPal actually went a step further and shuttered TIO Networks. They just shut the whole business down. They said, all right, well, we'll just turn that off, right? 
for a company like PayPal, it's not worth it for them to, to keep that up and running the way that it was. And I think they were going to convert those into like PayPal booths anyway. You'll probably see that anyway in the next few months. And, and people who don't know about the acquisition will just say, oh, we had that problem with TIO. Well, thankfully, PayPal has jumped in now and we have these PayPal booths to go ahead and and, and do it. But uh, yeah, I noticed that even on the on the, the report, they were pointing people to, well, go to TIO's website to learn more about this. So, I mean, basically, there's uh, no harm for them in in running the TIO brand name <laughs> through the mud because, like you said, they're probably going to be a PayPal a brand uh, that, that they co-brand at some yeah. point. And the, the interesting thing here, uh, you know, a lot of companies are under heat right now for delaying the reporting of a compromise, right? That they find out about the, the breach and then they sit on it for sometimes years, right? Uh, Yahoo, where they sat on it for how many years was that one? It was like seven years yeah. uh, that, that they just sat on that information that there was a compromise. Well, PayPal, they didn't notify people right away either. Apparently, they found out about this breach on November 10th, and here we are on December 5th, and uh, you know we're, we're just now hearing about it. But they found out about it on November 10th and shut TIO down on November 10th. So like they immediately shut it down and started contacting people to let them know a breach occurred. Today, we're just finding out the details. Now they're telling us, here's how many people were affected. Here's you know this bit of information. So we're starting to learn a little more. But it was definitely a different take, and I was glad to see them be aggressive about it. And you know, you hate to see breaches like these happen, but this one, I don't think, is, is PayPal's fault. But pretty pretty interesting nonetheless. Yeah, and meanwhile, all my fantasy football information is, is out there from <laughs> Yahoo just for years for anyone to uh, get an insight into how I poorly manage my team. Um, just to go back and answer the question from earlier, uh, PayPal started in 1998 as uh, Confinity, and then in 1999, they uh, changed their name to X.com. And then, uh, then they went to PayPal, at which point I assume they were able to fund that growth by selling the domain name X.com um, <laughs> for uh, billions and billions of dollars. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's not something that, that really makes me question my uh, trust in PayPal at this point. Because, yeah. you know, you do your due diligence when you're bringing on a company like that, but obviously they had not integrated those networks yet, and probably this would have been uncovered well, yeah. hopefully this would have been uncovered before they had done anything like Th that. This is another case where we, we shouldn't just trust a headline, that you do need to read a little more and find out more information because saying PayPal got breached is a little bit unfair. Now, if PayPal does have a breach, then that is big news because they really have done an excellent job maintaining their security for a long, long time uh, when they are a super big target. So, uh, you know, definitely look out for that headline. But when you see it, make sure to read a little more. It's so a fake news. Um, well, you know, it, there was a breach. <laughs> uh, depending yeah. on the headline, PayPal it could be fake news. Entity, yeah. But yeah, I'm sure there are, are plenty of clickbait articles out there uh, that are, are taking advantage of that. Uh, now let's shift gears to something that, um, you know, I, I read this headline and read this article here from Don, and uh, I understand some of the words in the headline. <laughs> uh, but I know that Don will understand most of them, at least, because you have a, uh, a System76 machine right there. So, yep. so this is uh, System76 will disable Intel management engines on its Linux laptops. Right. So, so you're not going to have an Intel management engine well, anymore. Well, you know, it, it's funny because technically I will. And, and let me let me explain what's going on. It's, it's weird. Um, the, the Intel management engine has been in the news a lot lately, right? Management engine, if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's an actual onboard computer that's completely embedded inside of your CPU. If you have an Intel i3, i5, i7 that's been manufactured in the last three years, you're guaranteed to have it. Even before then, you, you may well have it, and it's just built into the CPU. And basically what it means is that even if you have no operating system in your computer, no operating system at all, uh, and you power the computer on, the miniature computer that's inside of the CPU, the embedded system, it can activate your network adapter, it can activate other parts of the system, and it can reach out and talk and communicate back to Intel. And it's designed not just to communicate back to Intel, but to be managed by enterprises. And it was originally rolled out as part of Intel's vPro solution, so it lets you manage these computers. Well, people have been finding out more information about the management engine over the last few weeks, and they, they learned that it ran the Minix OS. And, and that one hit the news because... By being embedded in the CPU like that, overnight, it made the Minix open source operating system literally the most popular operating system in the world. Overnight. It, you know, it used to be Windows, then it became Minix. Uh, or actually, I think Android had already surpassed Windows, and now Minix is number one because it runs in the management engine. Well, the problem is 
it's completely closed off, completely hidden. You can't look at it. You can't review the code or anything like that. And some people found security flaws in it. They found JTAG exploits where through the USB port of a computer, you could access that management engine and compromise it. And if you compromise it in the CPU, there's nothing you can do to undo that. You can't like run a virus scan. You can't format your hard drive. You're out of luck, right? It's a big deal. So that management engine is getting a huge amount of attention. Well, you can actually disable the management engine, but it's not easy. It's not like a BIOS switch. You can go in there and, and flip or a UEFI setting or anything like that. Um, there's actually a, a bit that's on those CPUs that's made available for the NSA. This is, I think, ironic that when the NSA buys a computer, the, the National Security Agency here in the, the U.S., um, when they buy a computer, they have to guarantee or whoever's selling them computers to guarantee that remote access functionality is completely disabled. And so they put this special little bit in there that could be set, a flag that would turn off the management engine. And at System76, they figured out how to set that, that bit, that little flag. And so they made an announcement. It's been retweeted a million times now, but they made an announcement that for now on, when they sell a, a laptop, the management engine will be disabled by default. And they're not sure, first off, whether it'll stay disabled or not, uh, or whether you'll even be able to re-enable it if you want it. The problem is that bit wasn't designed for general use. They found a way to use it, but it's not available for general use. So there may come a time in the future where it gets re-enabled somehow, and, and they don't have a lot of control because nobody really knows how Intel updates that management engine. They, they have to have some kind of mechanism, or you'd hope they had a mechanism for updates. Uh, and if they do, they may be able to re-enable it. So there's not a guarantee that it will be gone forever, but they are disabling it in its current form on all new laptops. But the neat part here was their older laptops. They said, hey, if you already bought a laptop like mine, and, you know, I bought mine, uh, it's a few months old now, um, that they are releasing a, a little driver patch that you can run that will disable the management engine. And when I first heard about that, I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll, I'll download it and, and see what it's like, right? Because we can show it on the podcast. But they made a really odd decision. So um, I have a System76 laptop. They... They like to ship with Ubuntu, and I'm, you know, Ubuntu is fine for most people. I'm not the biggest fan. I run uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. They didn't release the driver for that. So even though I've got their laptop and I'm running Linux, they they kind of put their own boundaries on their fix, and and so I can't apply it on mine uh, unless I boot to an Ubuntu system and apply it that way. So kind of kind of a limiter there. So is that is that an issue with? System76 did that, or, or an issue in, in Red Hat, where Red Hat would have to give you some, some way to get in there? This one is, is System76. Okay. They, they just decided to, to only release it for Ubuntu, and they might change their minds later on, but that's how they did it. So when you look at bigger vendors like Dell and HP and uh, Lenovo, they, they may want to do it as well, or they may not. They might be under pressure from the government or even from Intel to say, you need to leave that enabled. Yeah, because the NSA, who... Doesn't want or wants to make sure there's no remote access to their machines. Really has a vested interest in making sure there's still remote access to your machine. Yep, these are the same people who are <laughs> lobbying right now to say we don't need a warrant to decrypt people's data. Yeah, which you know that seems like a pretty cut and dry argument. Yeah, you do need a warrant because you're actually having to open something. But uh, but they make the argument that's logical. So there there's definitely you know a kind of a conf conflict of interest on this stuff. Uh, but. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So it's neat to see uh, System76 is the first major vendor that's reaching out and, and promoting that. Like, here's a way you can disable that engine. And now every time you read one of those articles about how a new vulnerability has been found, you don't have to worry about it. And for a feature that most of us don't use, it is kind of annoying to have a vulnerability on your system for a feature you didn't, didn't ever intend to use. You know, my laptop is individually managed. It's not like I'm managing a thousand of these and I use vPro or anything like that. Uh, so it's it's really a, a wasted feature and now a vulnerability. So just walk me through, um, let's say you had a problem with Red Hat, um, something became corrupt. And so when you logged in, you would normally have that Minix, you called it? Is that right? Mm -hmm. So you'd have that kind of boot up. If you disabled that, what would happen then? Your laptop's so, just dead. So actually, the, the end user never sees the management engine, ever. Okay. It, it's not on the screen. It's not even part of your boot process. It's really, it, it, this is the hard part to, to grasp. The management engine is, is literally an entire computer in and of itself. So when you buy a computer, really when you buy the CPU, Intel has embedded an entire computer right on that CPU that has full access to your buses. In other words, it can access all of your RAM, 
It can access your network adapters. It can access all of your video, you know, any DMA, uh, direct memory access, any of that stuff. It can, it can access that, right? And it's designed to provide management of the system that uh, if the system has been stolen, it'll phone home, right? The moment it gets a network connection, it'll reach out. Even if the computer's been formatted, it'll phone home and, and do it invisibly is the goal so mm -hmm. that the people who have stolen the computer don't see it. Uh, or if a computer is a corrupt operating system that I could, through vPro, somehow remotely deploy a new disk image, you know, things like that. That's what it's really designed for. It's never designed to even be seen by the end user. So if your computer, like if, if my OS got messed up right now, it, I could fix that through the tools that Red Hat and through Linux and, and those tools that I have and through some of the BIOS tools, but the management engine is not even not even an option for me. Gotcha. Right? It's, it's, think of it more like um, in the spy movies when somebody takes the, the tracking de device that's got a magnet and they stick it on the yeah. bottom of a car, right? Exactly. The, it doesn't help the person in the car. They don't get like better GPS coordinates. Yeah. It, you know, it's just completely isolated. So I think the key takeaway uh, from this story then is it's now... Um, safe to go ahead and steal System76 laptops and know that uh, you will not be tracked. You know, that's a good counter story. I, I didn't think of that. That, um, yeah, that is true. Yeah, so there you go. Again, I'm, I'm glad that I, I got the key takeaway then that, that we were looking for there. All right. Well, with that said, uh, let's go ahead and shift gears to um, uh, there's a story about real laptops um, from Apple, uh, like, like this one. Uh, just move one decimal place over and you're buying this laptop. <laughs> um, so, so Johnny Ive of Apple uh, says that holding on to features when there's a better way is uh, a path that leads to failure. And this is something you said came out a couple weeks ago, but, but yep. you, you wanted yep. to talk about it. All right, so it's December 5th, and uh, this, this quote came out November 16th, right? So two and a half weeks ago, um, three, I don't know, two, let's say three weeks ago, right? And I saw it, and I didn't, it's not newsworthy. I, I didn't think, oh, let's report on this. Johnny, I've said something. There are websites that, uh, that do that. Uh, <laughs> MacRumors.com. <laughs> MacRumors. Oh, is that where you're at? Uh, so, <laughs> or or 9to5Mac. I'm sure exactly. they all reported all on this. Yeah. Um, but so he said that um, letting go of features uh, or hanging on to features that, that just aren't the way forward, that, that's stymies innovation, right? Uh, and, and what he was referring to was, was the headphone jack, really, uh, that Apple gave up the headphone jacks. Several other phone providers did. And what he's saying is, look, there's other stuff out there. You can go to a Bluetooth headset, and now you don't need the headphone jack. So we could free up that space and use it for other things. Um, Razer, the gaming company, they just put out a cell phone that has no headphone jack. And their CEO actually did something neat. Uh, instead of just saying, because this is the future, which is what Johnny Ive says, mm -hmm. um, he came out and said, hey, by leaving that headphone jack out, I was able to add uh, 500 MAs of extra battery. And we were able to add this, we were able to add that with the extra space. And so now you had a justification, like you knew why it was gone. Which, um, which I think Apple did when they first, was it the 7 that first had no headphone jack? And they were able to make it just a little bit thinner, was, was their... And, argument at the time. And, uh, and Congratulations. Maybe, maybe you care about that. Maybe that's important. Maybe, maybe it isn't. But the part that I kind of keyed on, and I'm going to tie this back to security because I put this in our, our Apple slash security section, is that sometimes they let go of features for the wrong reason. And when they were trying to get the iPhone 8 done, they were trying really hard to get rid of the home button because they wanted the screen to fill the whole face of the phone. And the problem there was the home button was the fingerprint reader. And they didn't want to stick the fingerprint reader on the back of the phone because that's what Android does, and they don't want to be like Android. So they were trying to get the under-the-screen fingerprint reader. Did you ever see those, Peter? The un oh, I've, yeah, I've, I've read about that during this time when, when the iPhone 8 was coming and the, out. Yeah. And the idea was you could put your finger right on the screen, and, and it would— see through it. Yeah. yeah, yep. but they had technical problems. It didn't work out, and so they didn't have it. But by that point in the game— they had to do their November launch date, right? It's what they always, they do the, what is it, the August reveal, October pre-order yeah. or something. So they had this timeline they wanted Christmas. to hit. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. it. Uh, and so they said, all right, fine. If we can't get the fingerprint reader on there, let's do face ID and let's just tell people that that's better, that that's the future, right? And, oh yeah, face ID, it's way better than the fingerprint reader. And that that's what they did. And so they said, hey, touch ID is gone. And now we're going to Face ID. It wasn't like a graceful transition where they said, hey, on this phone, you're going to have both. And on the next phone, we're just going to go to Face ID. Which I, I will say, going back, you know, the, the reason that, that I, I mean, I, I'm kind of of the old school a little bit where 
I felt that they got rid of the headphone jack a little bit early, but by that point, Bluetooth technology had been out for uh, you know for several years, and Bluetooth headphones had pretty much if you bought headphones you know a year ago, chances are they either had Bluetooth as well or um, you know relied solely on it unless you were seeking out uh, specific kinds of headphones. So you know in in that case you had both technologies for a while. You could use mm-hmm. your Bluetooth, head- Bluetooth headphones or you could plug them in. This was kind of just a flip the switch, Band-Aid off. You know, no one was used to this technology already. Which, you know, for them, that makes me think that they didn't plan on doing that. Yeah. Like, they planned on launching with Face ID and an under-the-screen Touch ID, right? Uh, and then if that had happened, I don't think people would be using Face ID because Face ID sucks. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, not – I know what they say, like, uh, oh, on the Apple phones, it, it, it is far more accurate on Face than, than uh, you know, uh, Face ID on an Android phone, which that may absolutely be true. But I think of, like, my use case scenario, which is when I take my phone out of my pocket, I've already got my finger on the fingerprint reader, mm-hmm. so it's unlocked by the time I look at it, and Face ID is not like that. So, um, so that, that was what I thought. But, you know, that, that's just me. And sometimes my use case is not the same as other people. So interesting thing happened. I've found happened. many times it's not the, the case as other people. You're, <laughs> you're a power user, Don, <laughs> and you've got to understand that. Well, it was only a matter of days before some researchers found a way to make a mask that tricked Face ID. All right, but you got to make a mask. That's a lot of work. And then last week there was the article about the son who was able to unlock his mother's phone. Right. And Apple came out and said, well, you know, it doesn't work so well for people under a certain age because all their facial features haven't haven't, uh, you know, developed yet. Well, to me, the thumbs like, developed by that, that point. It is. <laughs> you, you have your fingerprint. Uh, and also that's not the kid's problem. It's the parent's problem. Right. So um, if the kid had a phone, then, yeah, other people might be able to unlock it. I get it. That makes sense. But the fact that a kid can unlock somebody else's phone, that's a real problem. But the bad one that came out because even then apple said well they're they're genetically related right you know it's a son and a mom or a father and son mother and daughter whatever uh that they're close there were twins that did yeah. it it makes sense they're twins right uh although now with twins, twins have, have the same they have different fingerprints they have different fingerprints. twins have different fingerprints same exact dna though as far as i'm aware well identical i guess you've got identical and fraternal even identical like like straight up split cell identical twins have different fingerprints all right i'll, have, I'll look into this yeah, yep. Um, uh, and retinal patterns, apparently. Uh, retinal patterns the other thing, uh, which Face ID... Does not get that far yet. It, it says they do some yeah. eye stuff, but not really. Um, so the interesting one, though, was last week, or no, just a couple of days ago, uh, Cousins. Cousins were able to trick it, right? Now, Cousins, that's really interesting because not the same mom, not the same dad, right? Unless it's, you know, in certain places. Uh, so <laughs> these these, uh, these cousins, uh, so there is a genetic relation, right? But at that point, it would be um, it was like 25 yeah. to 50% same genetic code, something like that, yeah. a fairly low number. Uh, and they were able to trick Face ID. And that's starting to highlight some of the problems there. Like Face ID is not as good as Touch ID, but that's not how they presented it. Like, hey, this is the next best thing. It's not your fingerprint. It's your face. It's it's right here. You're going to look at the phone anyway. It's going to lock. It's amazing, and it's more accurate than uh, than fingerprint. Uh, I think they said, what is it? Uh, oh, in the announcement, it was one, one in a million, right? People would, would be able to unlock it. But they don't designate, like, in a country like the U.S., our population is 600 million? Something like that, yeah. Um, so that means there's 600 people 600 here people in the U.S. There. Yeah. Uh, if 300 of them are in the same city, <laughs> that's, that's not so effective, right? Exactly. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and, and on Apple's defense, I will say they're, they're not the first ones to do facial recognition. And uh, I think, for example, uh, Microsoft's done it with the, with the Surface laptops, correct? Isn't that on oh, some, yeah. some of the end? Yeah. So, but, but they still have, you can type in a password. They've still got those other things. So maybe we're not hearing about it as much because they're not forcing people to use what? it where you're, you're finding those test cases. So you have a choice, right? And uh, my phone, I have a, an Android uh, a Samsung Galaxy S8. And it has facial recognition. I can do facial unlock with it, but I don't because I know it's not great, right? It's not terribly accurate. So I don't do facial unlock with it. And Samsung knows that too. That's why their face recognition is just to unlock the phone. Like you can't do Android pay with, with facial recognition. They don't let you do that. But fingerprint, they do. They recognize the security weakness. Apple, I feel like they, they had to, to rush that out and well, it was all or nothing because they had, you know, certain banking apps. You you can use your your thumb to open in the yep. on the older ones, and so 
if you don't have the thumb reader, you go back to you either password. do a password or you say, yeah, the, we trust the facial recognition enough, which obviously, you know, yeah. something we'll need to think about. So I, I thought that was really interesting and, and an example of where when you put a feature over, like prioritize a feature over security, that's not moving forward. That's not, you know, going back to his quote where he said, uh, you know, holding on to features when there's a better way is a path that leads to failure. Face ID was a better way than than Touch ID. That is not that's not the case. Yeah, and what worries me, what's always worried me, is is you know ever since watching I don't know Minority Report, uh, you know I've, I've I've been skeptical skeptical of using my Retina for anything because I know my eyes will be stolen at some point. Yeah, I mean you can same, pop them out and exactly same with the thumb <laughs> that someday my thumb will be taken. Um, but uh, you know the face. I mean I can live without a thumb. I can live without an eye. I'm pretty much going to need the face. You know, I've seen yeah. uh, Silence of the Lambs, but I still think I'm, <laughs> I'm going to rely on it heavily, so I'm not excited about that. And the, and the other thing, you know, more, on a more serious note, you know, there's been a lot of talk here in the U.S. Um, after, I think it was the San Bernardino shootings that, um, you know, of Apple, would they uh, give the resources to unlock the phone to the FBI? Well, you know, police could potentially just take your thumb if you're intoxicated or something and put it on your phone and unlock your phone. Well, now... You know, it's a lot easier for them to just kind of hold it up to you if you've got face recognition yeah. and, hey, unlock this phone for me, and boom, you just did it. And, you know, there, there's there's going to be an argument in court someday about, well, did you give permission? You looked at the phone. It, yeah, it, it's already yeah. started. Yeah. Uh, it's starting to work through the court system now because of the warrant thing, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, if they take your thumb and hold it to the phone and they don't have a warrant, I mean, in theory, anything they get from the phone is no longer admissible. Yeah. But if they don't need a warrant to do it, then yeah, they're free. And you can make the same argument about a house. Like if they arrest you, they could take the keys out of your pocket sure. and then go unlock your house. But they don't do that because they need to get a warrant. So we'll, yeah. we'll see where that goes. That's all working through the court systems now. And and if you're not in the U.S., you're probably laughing because all this is ridiculous. But here in the U.S., uh, yeah, we but make things overly you're complex. One in, in, uh, or, so there's 600 people in the U.S. that would be at risk to open your phone. And you say, well, what are the chances of running into them? Well, it turns out they're your family. Yeah. So, <laughs> so pretty good chance uh, that you're going to run into them. So the this, this 600 people closest to you are the ones that are going to I, I saw an insurance commercial a few years ago. And remember that insurance commercials are the only ones that don't want to make you happy about a product. They want to make you scared and afraid. <laughs> and, uh, and this insurance company was saying, like, over 75% of accidents happen within five miles of your own home. And I saw that commercial. I was like, wait a minute. 95% of my driving is done within five miles of my own home. That's a stupid statistic. <laughs> but they, they word it in a way to make it scary. And, and, well, you and should where, move then. I know. That because that's apparently a very dangerous place you live. But then that's where all my new accidents oh, will be, is gosh. at the new house. I know. It's it's like in Poltergeist. You, you can move out of the house, but the yeah, Poltergeist follows you. you. Yeah, is yeah. It? Well, that's good to know. Nah, well, well, speaking of... Uh, of bugs and poltergeist and things in your computer. Uh, last time on week 48's update, we talked about the big uh, root password vulnerability in High Sierra and certain versions uh, that people were able to actually, they physically had to, to be at your machine, but they could get into, uh, they could get root access into your machine. Uh, it looks like uh, that has been resolved. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going to do another poltergeist reference here, right? Perfect. Because this is a bug that's come back from the dead. Apple removed the headstone, but they didn't remove uh -huh. the body. So, uh, <laughs> yes, what you... people don't know is High Sierra was built on an old Indian burial ground. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. We've got, yeah. The, was it a Costa Verde? Yeah. Uh, whatever. So, um, the interesting side of this one was that, uh, basically in, and Mac OS 10.13, there was a root exploit. You guys have all heard of it, right? You, you could uh, get to an authentication prompt, type in root as the user, leave the password blank. It would fail the first time, and it would let you right in. Uh, no, no big deal there, right? So uh, huge, huge problem, right? It is a total breach of security in your own machine. Well, they released a patch, and they released a patch fast, right? So that, that was cool, right? They did a good job. They pushed the patch out. And if you had updated to macOS 10.13.1, then the update came out, and you were fixed, right? So you didn't have to worry about it. But they didn't do full testing. They rushed the update out really fast. And so there's one scenario that turned out to be pretty common where the bug comes back, that if you're running 10.13 and you apply the patch, now you're safe. And if you then upgrade to 10.13.1, it comes back. It actually resets it, and so the patch is gone, and now the vulnerability is back again. So I wanted to mention it again in this episode, even though we covered it last week. 
as a, a word of, of advisement, if you are running a Mac network out there and you pushed the patch out under 10.13 and you hadn't pushed the 10.13.1 update out, when you push 10.13.1, you need to reapply the patch, all right? Or any day now, 10.13.2 is going to come out and it will include the patch. They're at like beta six, I think. Let's see, 10.13.2 beta six, yep. So, uh, uh, so that will be included in 10.13.2. But just to, to, to make it black and white here, if you applied the patch prior to updating to 10.13.1 and then you do the 10.13.1 upgrade, you've now got the vulnerability. You need to reapply the patch. All right, so definitely look into that. Uh, and we did a, a YouTube video on how to see the exploit and how to patch for it. So uh, search our YouTube channel or you know, just do IT Pro TV Mac OS root uh, as a search. You, you should find it. Uh, and, and we kind of walked through that process. But just word of advisement, if you applied the patch, it may have been rolled back. Or you can use the process that I'm doing, which is uh, not update from Sierra uh, to High <laughs> Sierra until all this is just gone. So. Yeah, that's what I I'm mean, going with. That's an option. It's an yeah. option. They, they they are still pushing security updates for Sierra, so it's not like you're you're giving up on security at that point. But yeah, yeah this is a pretty glaring bug, and it makes you wonder: were, were there other bugs like this in the past that we didn't hear about? Because this is this is pretty bad. Well, speaking of bad bugs, uh, we've got one on a uh, popular virtual keyboard uh, on. I believe this is on Android uh, devices. Uh, it looks like it is. And um, this is something that uh, is basically giving people or giving, yeah, giving uh, hackers access to your entire phone. So uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're using a keyboard, uh, you could be at risk coming up tonight at 11. All right. So this, uh, this headline came from ZDNet. And, uh, you know, I should really be saying where all this stuff comes from. So we, we've referenced uh, Sophos Naked Security. Well, we're going back to the source. And... It comes from Apple. It yeah. comes from PayPal. Oh, there we go. We're all going right. all the way to the... Well, the, uh, the ZDNet headline on this one, I'll read their headline. A popular virtual keyboard app leaks 31 million users' personal data, and that's not good. Well, I added that part at the end, and that's not good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we'll leave it up to you to decide whether that's good or bad. But, uh, you know, again, I read the headline, and I think, boy, I need to find out more. So, first off, a popular virtual keyboard, what keyboard is it, right? So, uh, I didn't know, and so I, I read the article, and, and it is the AI.type keyboard, which I've never heard of, right? Uh, not have you that heard popular. Of it? No. Right. Well, I'm 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 on a an iPhone, but oh uh, yeah. Well, iPhones have custom keyboards now. I, I don't know if they have AI. Sure. Type, I mean, I've got my 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 Giphy keyboard, and I have my have uh, that. Um, what are the what are the things that uh, shoot? You're the, talking to the wrong guy. Yeah, you don't crazy have gifs and never mind. I'll, I'll find it. You bit, go, bitmoji. Go bitmoji. Thank ah, you. Look at that. Yeah, I was about to pull out the phone, and <laughs> and I learned the other day. Complete side note here is that. Uh, I, I was told that my Bitmoji did not look like me and that it is common practice or it, it – I can't remember if it should be common practice or it is that you should have someone else create your Bitmoji for you so it looks like you because right. we see ourselves differently. My Bitmoji is gorgeous apparently. Chiseled abs. Yeah, chiseled, and, uh... just rock solid abs, <laughs> which I have under a uh, thick layer of, of protection. But anyway, go on. So, All right. So I, it wasn't Bitmoji. Bitmoji uh, It wasn't, yeah, and I don't Relax. have Bitmoji. Anyway, it was AI.type. I haven't heard of them, but their, their user base is 41 million. So 41 million people out there have heard of them, uh, and they had a full breach, right? So attackers got into the network and exfiltrated 577 gigabytes of data, right? Now, what I wanted to talk about here was what kind of data we're talking about, right? Because when, when a website gets breached, it's normally, it's normally things like username, an encrypted password, a, uh, uh, maybe your email address, maybe your mailing address, right? And that's personally identifiable information. It's, it's your data, some that you can't easily change. So that, that's not, not good, right? But on a keyboard like this, with 41 million users, 577 gigabytes of data. I mean, if you work that out based on, on the users, how much data is that per user? That's an insane amount of data. So what exactly does the keyboard have? And, um, you know, I can't remember if it was you, Peter, or somebody else here in the office that said, man, is that keyboard recording everything you type? Is it like a keylogger? And I wanted to, to chime in on this because I, I kind of know what, what some of these keyboards do. Uh, a lot of them do adaptive predictive text, right? Predictive text is where you start typing a word and it tries to autocomplete and it gives suggestions like, are you typing this word or that word? And, and for me, they're always wrong, but apparently for other people, they, <laughs> they, they work. Uh, I don't know, but it's there. Well, in order to be adaptive, 
some of them do a couple of different things. So some of them do pay attention to the words that you type frequently, which means they're not recording your whole sentences or, or whatever, but they are recording the primary words, the unique words that you use. Not, not things like the and to and at. Those are common words, right? But the unique words that you type, like your own last name. My last name is not in any dictionary for you know whatever reason. Uh, but after I type it enough times, the keyboard learns, and now it knows that my last name is, is what I'm about to type. So that data is increasingly being stored in the cloud. A lot of the popular keyboards like SwiftKey and Swipe, they store it in the cloud. And if that gets compromised, they could now have access to your personally identifiable information. And if they can tie that to a dictionary, that dictionary can include a lot of things, a lot of words that you use frequently, which may be the answers to some of your security questions on websites. It might be a password. If some keyboards don't recognize when you're typing a password and they start to add that to your suggested text, and now you've got passwords that are stuck in there. It's disorganized, but the data is there, right? And, and that's a big risk. And some of the other ones, the first time you run them, will say, hey, do you want to connect your Google account? Or do you want to connect your Facebook account? That way we can load your contact list. And when you start typing a person's name or a person's email, we can automatically complete it. Sounds like a great feature, right? But again, being stored in the cloud, that becomes part of this data. So when this breach occurred, 40 million users or 41 million, however many, um, you know, I'm seeing more than one piece of data they have here. 40, 40 million users around the world and data belonging to 31 million ah. customers uh, was leaked. Okay. So it wasn't complete. I guess maybe they noticed or the attackers got bored. Yeah. But uh, but either way, um, these users have had not only their personally identifiable information taken, but all of this predictive text. And that that's a problem. And so this is one of those cases where you as an end user need to evaluate um, security versus convenience, right? Is the convenience of autofilling an email address worth it to potentially expose that data. Now, the reality is an email address, most email addresses have been stolen already. And if they haven't been stolen, you hand out email addresses to anybody who's going to email you. Spammers have your email address. So it's not the end of the world. Yeah, there's value from a, from a hacker's perspective, though, to have your email address tied to your name and your phone number. Because yep. being able to take a list like that and sell it to... Um, you know, people that are, I mean, you could, you could sell it as, oh, yeah, this is opt-in, and, and people do that all the time, um, where they come across lists that, that are maliciously uh, acquired. And then if they identify words that are, I mean, it'd be a simple scan to look for words sure. that are over 12 characters and have three consonants in a row, right? Because the odds are that's going to be a password. And, you know, or, or look for any suggested word that has a punctuation mark in it, because the odds are that's going to be a password. And so they could go through and look and, and start to identify that. And they sat there on this network and exfiltrated 577 gigs. Even on a fast network, how long does it take to get 577 gigs of data out of a company? So that company should have been watching their bandwidth, you know, watching their network. And even if they didn't know they got breached, when they saw their upload bandwidth start getting consumed, that should have been an anomaly, right? We need to do anomaly detection on networks as part of threat intelligence and, and seeing when things change. And the moment they saw that start to spike, they, they could have stopped it, and maybe they could have stopped it at 10 gigs or 20 gigs instead of 577 gigs of data uh, being released. That, that's pretty bad. But so. there were still 9 million of their users that weren't effective, so, so that's affected. True. So, that's true. You know, I think we owe them... Uh, you know, a little bit of an apology. There. You know, and, and what if, let's throw some irony on it, I have no idea, but what if like those 9 million users were ones who were in China and you know, China has that rule now that if you have data on a Chinese customer, it's got to be stored on servers in China. Mm. So maybe those are the 9 million that were safe and the great firewall saved them. Uh, or it could have been the other way around. You know, maybe this is popular in China and the 9 million people were outside of China. I, oh, I, I think that's worth all of the uh, other things that... <laughs> That the government in China uh, does to uh, you, you've got your, yeah. your keyboard is safe. Probably not. So <laughs> you're welcome. All right. Well, we wanted to switch gears to uh, maybe some happier news. And uh, and last week uh, when we were covering uh, the, the news and review for week 48, uh, we talked about the AWS conference that was going on, and we expected some new or, or some additional things to kind of trickle out uh, from the AWS event. And it looks like they did. So uh, the first one that we want to talk about was Container Service is getting support for, and I had to ask you how to pronounce this, Kubernetes? Kubernetes. Kubernetes. Yeah. Kubernetes. So yeah. what is Kubernetes? So um, so this, this was a big deal, and, and 
when you have a big conference like that, they release so much news. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what are going to be the big items and which ones aren't. So that, that's why we said in the last episode, you know, I, I need time to digest and, and find all this stuff. Um, and this was probably, I'll say it's probably the biggest announcement to come out of the AWS conference this year uh, was support for Kubernetes. Now, if you don't know what it is, um, let, let's back up a little bit and talk about containers, right? So containers are the buzzword of the, the year, right? That if you're creating a web app, in the past, you had to package it in a way that could be loaded onto a server. And if you needed a cluster, if you needed replication, if you needed all this extra stuff, it, it all had to be configured a certain way, and it involved a lot of pieces. And you could just look at AWS to see that, where you needed S3 and EC2 and Lambda and you know, all these different pieces to stick together to create your solution. Well, containers made it where developers didn't have to worry about all that stuff. They could write a web application and stick it in a Docker container, which is like a package. And then you could deploy that package anywhere in the world that supported Docker, and it would run, right? So that was really cool. They didn't have to worry about servers anymore. And that's why we see containers used so much. But what people don't talk about is that when you create a Docker container, it's just one container, and, and that's it. But most web applications are made up of a lot of pieces. They have a database where the data is stored. They have a web front end that shows the web pages to the users. They have a, a, an application that's actually doing some kind of data processing. They have each of these different components. And it gets even more complex when you have a cluster. Because now I might have multiple web front ends. I might have multiple database servers and, and multiple application servers. And how does all that get tied in? They can't all be in one container because you can't have one container exist on more than one server. So they need to be separate containers and they need to be handled in a certain coordinated manner. And so this time last year, there were like four different technologies that were all working on how to do this, how to create coordinated container deployments. And over the last year, Kubernetes emerged as the, the kind of winning uh, vehicle for doing this. Uh, Docker Swarm was another one from the official Docker people, right? Um, Google backed Kubernetes, uh, and that one is the one that's kind of won. Now, Google Compute has had Kubernetes support for a long time now, uh, but AWS is now adding it. So they, they rolled out official support for the Kubernetes platform. And what that means is that you can run a Kubernetes deployment on your own laptop uh, using uh, Kubelets, and you can fire up a container, you can develop, create your web application, and when you've got it designed exactly the way you want, you can go to AWS, and you can upload your container configs right into AWS's Kubernetes system, and it runs the exact same way it did on your own machine, and it handles the clustering and, and all of the other auto-scaling and stuff. It's all part of that system that's managed by Kubernetes, and that that's really, really powerful. So how much time is that saving someone then? Uh, I mean, is this something that you do several times a day, and, and so you're taking out those steps? Or uh, I would say that it it's not about how much time it saves one person, but how much time it saves a, a, a team of people okay. that... Uh, you really couldn't just have one person do the whole thing in the past. They, very few people uh, are great developers and uh, are great at setting up multi-site replication in AWS and are great at doing database design and management. You know, So normally you have several different people that are working here. You've got the developer, you've got the database administrator, you've got the system administrator and the network engineer. So you've got all these different people providing a piece of a solution, right? And when you have a platform like uh, you know, a, a scalable container platform, now all the stuff underneath the container gets obfuscated and handled by a cloud provider. And so you can just have that DevOps role, right? A developer who does a little bit of operations to be able to create the, the application in a container and then be able to throw it into a service. Now, the database administrator, the network engineer, the sysadmin, they still exist. Those jobs didn't disappear. They just work for Amazon now, right? Or they work for Google, or they work for Microsoft Azure, or whatever, right? Uh, so they still exist, but as a company, you're not paying their salary anymore. The big companies are. So you just have your developers, and your developers do what they do best, which is develop, right? Uh, most developers don't want to be a system administrator. Most developers don't want to be a DBA. They, they want to write their application and make it awesome. And so this helps them to focus on that. So it makes them more efficient. And it makes them not have to worry about the other areas where big mistakes can happen. There are tons of people who say, I wrote a web application, so I'm going to go into AWS. I'm going to launch a CentOS uh, EC2 instance and throw Apache on it and throw my app on there. And it runs great. But if they don't know how to do routine system updates, right? Amazon doesn't, doesn't do a YUM or DNF update on your system. Uh, they don't update libraries. It's up to you to do that. Once you do the initial deployment, it's now on, on you. 
And most developers don't don't think about it, don't worry about it, don't don't want to, and really shouldn't have to worry about that. This obfuscates all that. And the Kubernetes framework is consistent. So if you decide one day you don't like AWS, you can just turn right around and push the same config right over to, to Google Compute. And then you've deployed your environment there. You can split across the two and you can manage them both the same way because it's all being done through that same system. It gives you a, a lot of power to be able to do that. So so that's a big deal that, that AWS got on board with that and, and ran with it. And that makes a lot of sense. Then, I mean, a, a big function of that or a big key of that is is letting developers develop and having people focus on the things that they're best at. Uh, that's definitely helpful. And speaking of of developers developing, uh, another announcement from AWS uh, where uh, was they were are launching Cloud Nine integrated developer environment. So letting those developers write code directly in AWS. And I I mean that one makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Not, uh, I can see that as being a big plus. You know, Cloud9 is pretty slick. Um, uh, and if you haven't heard of it, I don't, I don't blame you there either because uh, it used to have a different name, which is called Ace. Um, there's an open source uh, uh, code editor. It's really an IDE, right? An integrated development environment. And um, uh, I forget the, the web page for it, but it's it's called Ace, A-C-E. And it, it's free. You can go and download it, run it on your own machine. Of course, named but, after the, the Kiss guitarist. Or the uh, pet detective. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not we sure. don't yeah. know which I'll, one. I'll check. I'll we'll have to look that up. You go ahead. Uh, so <laughs> so um, uh, the thing about an IDE is that it's great. You, you pick the one that you like. So maybe maybe I like um, Eclipse, right? Uh, maybe I – well, actually, you know, do I have the – Somewhere around here, you they have, have the, the yeah. ratings. I, I've lost it, though. The, but uh, Oh, here the it is. top-ranked IDEs? Um, yeah, yeah the, the number one IDE is Eclipse with like 26% market share. This is reported by itprotoday.com. Um, and they, they did uh, Google results to, to find this out. So it, it may or may not be completely accurate, but it should be pretty close. So uh, Eclipse at 26%. You've got Microsoft Visual Studio at 20%. You've got Android Studio at 9.5%. Uh, Vim at Eight and a half percent, which I thought was neat, because Vim is really just a text editor, not a full-blown IDE, but you can use it however you want. I, I use it uh, quite a bit, uh, and then Xcode at five point five percent, which is uh, for Apple app development. And sorry, when you say ranked, are are you saying the how much they're used? Yes. Okay. Yep. So they did a it's poll not a, of not you know not rankings and ratings of well, we prefer this one, but oh, it's right, what right. we're actually using. I'm so su- yeah, I'm surprised that Visual Studio wasn't up there on top. Under, yeah, under well, you know, you've got this huge movement for mobile app development. And sure. in in the early versions of Android, uh, Google pushed Eclipse as the IDE to use. So you've got a lot of people developing in it. Uh, and it supports plenty of other languages as well. Uh, and then, you know, Microsoft Visual Studio after that. But a lot of people are starting to develop for servers, for web apps. And Visual Studio, they, they kept up with that with C Sharp, but languages like Visual Basic and, and those are, are starting to wane. So, you, you know, IDEs change from year to year. Um, but 26% of developers are using Eclipse. So um, there's plenty of other ones that are out there. Like I, I use Sublime Text on, on my other machine, and, and it, it's whatever you're kind of happy with. Well, when you write an application... You should be able to pick whatever IDE you want, and if it's on your machine, that's great. But if you go to somebody else's machine, now you don't have your IDE, right? Now it's not there. Maybe you install it and configure it and all that, but but there's a, a lot to deal with there. So what Amazon's doing is they're actually making the well, the Ace IDE available as a web-hosted product right inside of AWS. So you can log into AWS, and you get the Ace IDE right there embedded in the web page. And so you can write your code right there in the cloud. It's stored in the cloud. And they don't even charge you for it except for the the resources you use. So that, you know, like if you tie it to an S3 bucket, then you're paying a little bit on the storage, which is 10 cents a month for a gig of data. So it's like super, super cheap. But the idea is that you can write your code in Cloud9 and then push it right into your AWS environment and you develop and deploy all right in the same environment, which is really cool. And I, one question I get a lot is, you know, Don, what are what are you studying right now? What are you, are you learning about? And one of the things that I've been learning about a lot lately are um, things you can do with Lambda functions. In AWS Lambda, you can do what's called serverless computing, where you know you can run serverless applications. You can write a, a web app and you can stick it in Lambda and you just run it when you need it. And there's no EC2 instance underlying it. You don't have to worry about how much RAM or CPU or whatever. You just run it when you need it. It's great for for things that are just run periodically. Uh, you wouldn't want to run a website there because you'll always have users on your website. But but if you have a, a script or a routine that runs once an hour, Lambda is amazing for that. Well, here, you can go into Cloud9. You can write your function. You can tie it into Lambda 
And you've got that whole life cycle occurring right there inside of AWS. And that, that's pretty slick stuff right there. So I, I thought that was a pretty neat feature to come out of this. So based on this, then, where do you see that? Uh, where do you see Cloud9 on that IDE list in, in a year? I think it's going to stay pretty low. Okay. Uh, you know, and the main reason is going to be uh, it's tied to AWS, right? So what if I use Google Compute? Cloud9 doesn't really offer me any benefits. If I use uh, Microsoft Azure, Cloud9 doesn't benefit me, right? Uh, you might as well use Ace at that point or, or one of the other IDEs. But if you do AWS, now you get some benefits. Now, the product is still being developed. And so, like, right now, if you've got multiple AWS accounts, that can cause some problems. And there's a few other things that, that are causing quirks with it. So it'll tend you know, continue to evolve. But even if it was completely flushed out today, being tied to AWS is going to stop it from, from really breaking through in, in any significant numbers. Sounds good. Well, anything else you want to cover this week before we wrap up? I mean, uh, pretty much a good week. I think yeah. only only you know ten million Canadians lost their info and uh, and people that use you know terrible uh, unpopular keyboards that we've never heard of on, yeah. on Android. So that's, that's you know not we bad. were we were heavy on security articles this week um, because there there really weren't any hardware announcements. You know. Um, uh, even in the Windows world, there was another insider build that came out, but then it's like every week these days. We're past the time um, of year for that. You know, if you yeah. wanted to to have hardware out for Christmas, it's out. So, uh, so we're, it's we're just you're just into hacking. It's been a little bit quiet. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, it tends to pick back up right after the new year. People yeah. start announcing all their new products for 2018. We'll see that CES. Uh, we'll have, have CES early yeah. in January. So a lot of fun new announcements at that. Hopefully. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see that come. But, uh, but you know, that's uh, what we've seen that's prominent in the news for week, what is it, week 48? 49. 49. Yeah. 49. Oh, it goes by so quick. There it is, 49 right there on the screen. <laughs> goes by so fast. And uh, if you liked the podcast today, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, all those those great places. Tune in. Uh, be sure to rank it, uh, rate it, share it with your friends. We really appreciate that. And Don's been getting on me to have a nice close at the end of the show. So I've I've been trying to think of, of them, and and I you know I I'd, I'd like some of your feedback. So maybe <laughs> we we put the podcast up on YouTube as well. So that's a good place for you to comment. We'll we'll do some little social media buzz. See um, what what I should close with. So so just for tonight, just to show you how bad it will uh, will be uh, without. Uh, your suggestions. I'll I'll just end by saying, uh, stay classy, internet. <laughs> you might as well just say, word. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>